Hey you, you're listening to Sloan Cast, the one stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time. Chris Murphy, Patrick Pentland, Andrew Scott, and Jay Ferguson, collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob, this is Ken. Ken, how you doing, buddy? Where were you in 1991? Oh, well, let me think. In 1991, I was seven years old, so I was probably wearing neon yellow sweatpants. Uh, a trucker's hat that wasn't ironically sported at that time uh, and was blissfully unaware of the greatest band of all time. Yeah, I was in grade seven. I was probably wearing like a Chicago Bulls outfit, maybe a Shaq hat. I couldn't name anybody on the Orlando Magic other than him. I just thought he was cool because he was tall. I was into soundtracks. I had probably just watched WrestleMania 7, and I was blissfully unaware of the greatest band of all time as well, and completely unaware that there was a music scene exploding on the East Coast. Uh, but, but our guests this time, this episode, Ken, were there. They were maybe more aware than we, we were of, of Sloan and of, of the, the, you know, the Halifax music scene, the East Coast music scene. And mm. um, they were there at Ground Zero. And, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we get to speak with this week. You know, I, 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 would, I would say we've got Stephen Cook here. Stephen, thanks for being here, sir. My pleasure. I, I consider you, I mean, I'm, I, I've never actually met you, so it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> um, but in my mind, I kind of consider you a writer, obviously, and that's sort of how I my point of reference for you. Would that be accurate? That, that works. That works well enough, yeah. Cool. And we've got Sean Pelly. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Rob. Yourself? Good, man. I, I consider you sort of a, a man about town, a sort of a, 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 a modern rock Forrest Gump, if you will. If you, if anybody follows you on social media, like you're just constantly, you've met everybody, you have like every record under the sun, uh, sort of just a music authority, if you will. Does that sound about right? Well, sure, but that much the same could be said for Stephen as well. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, yeah, we'll spread those credentials across everybody. Yeah, 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 we are vinyl bon vivants. Yes. There, hey, there we go. Mm, I'm doing the uh, Italian French kiss here. Mwah. I love it. Uh, okay, well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, like I said, and uh, you know, it, as Ken and I have talked about on the pod before, we consider ourselves second generation Sloan fans. Meaning, mm. when they kind of came back around again, 1996, the good and everyone, you know, the world was kind of introduced to them anew. Uh, but there are fans out there like you guys who we consider first gen fans. Okay, so people who were aware of them right when Underwhelm came out, or even maybe before that. So it could be before... like a zeroth generation fans. <laughs> Ground zero. Uh, so before we kind of get into Sloan chatter and whatnot, if you guys want to just maybe take a turn quickly, kind of just introducing yourself, sort of where you're from, maybe early life, maybe early musical memories, and then kind of how everything sort of culminated in, in you know, the early 90s in the, in the music scene. Well, I can uh, take the senior role here since I'm probably the old man of of the, the show today <laughs> and uh, we'll distinguish we'll distinguish the voices here ladies and gentlemen you're about to hear uh Stephen cook speak so please my friend yes make way <laughs> for my mellifluous <laughs> <laughs> tones um yeah i i uh was born in dartmouth and uh born on dartmouth natal day so that makes me a yankee dartmouth dandy or no a dartmouth doodle dandy that's what it does <laughs> makes me in 1967 and uh yeah uh apart from a couple of stints with my family out west uh pretty much grew up in dartmouth my whole life and uh you know started going to shows in the 80s um you know i i, I grew up hanging out at backstreets backstreet imports the famous arcade downtown where all, all the the cool kids hung out and, and then people like me who maybe weren't so cool but <laughs> love to play tetris and, uh, you know, and of course there were always posters up 
uh, on the walls for shows and things like that. And I, you know, I sometimes take them down and save them. I've got some cool punk rock posters from the late seventies and early eighties, uh, of some of the early bands, like nobody's heroes and so on. But I wasn't really going to those shows cause I was a little bit young at the age of 13. I really wasn't going out to many bars or even, uh, you know, Halifax coffee houses or what have you. Mm. And, uh, but you know, I was aware that there were some exciting things happening in Halifax, uh, you know, even around 1980, 81 thereabouts, you know, like I say, there are bands like Nobody's Heroes, uh, The Vacant Lot, The Trash Cans. They're kind of like the genesis of uh, Halifax indie rock and punk rock, if you will. And then uh, and then gradually the hardcore scene kind of started to take over and I started going to shows, um, you know, at places like, uh, there was a place called Seaweed Theater in the sort of early 80s uh, that was being run. I think it was in high school at that point. Uh, and it was, uh, there were these shows that were run by some some folks Gary and Kim Rilde LeBlanc, who put out a magazine called Repress, and they had a record store called Beat Town, and they rented this this theater uh, on the Dartmouth waterfront that's no longer there, um, that used to be the old Billy Club, uh, which was the Halifax Police Oh, Club. was that at the foot of Portland Street? Uh, it was in Alderney, where that pyramid-shaped Apartment yeah. Or oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right across from the city. The, well, the yeah. Billy Club moved to the actual Billy Club moved to Portland Street, and the old yeah. Billy Club became what was called Seaweed Theater. It was like okay. a community theater uh, that put on plays and stuff, but they also rented out for shows and things. And and so they put on some punk rock shows. And uh, I remember like a bunch of bands like Registered Vote, who did a lot of Clash covers, and they would become the Lone Stars. Uh, who are on the uh, Out of the Fog compilation with a lot of the early bands. Uh, they played, and uh, there was a, a band called Media Blitz, which featured members of some of the earlier hardcore bands like uh, Urban Attack and so on. And then uh, a couple of the sort of famous hardcore bands did these impromptu sets because everybody was there because it's not like there were a lot of shows going on. And they just picked up instruments and played sets. And that's how I was actually able to see Suburban Rebels and Urban Attack. Um, you know, play some of their last sets ever because they just happened to be there at the, sh- at the show. And there's all this equipment there that had been rented for the occasion. Cause usually these kinds of shows were happening in like church hall basements and, and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, you know, and, and that was it. I was hooked. I loved going to the shows. Uh, they're really exciting, you know, whether they were punk rock or experimental, of course, you know, with, with, uh, NASCAD, the Nova Scotia college of art and design, right in the heart of the city, uh, there was always a lot of fun experimentation going on and, mm. And then, you know, and that was basically it. And then I, I got, uh, I got into journalism school at King's and got a job in uh, commercial radio immediately after graduation. So I was covering, you know, more commercial stuff because I was at C100, which was a very commercial radio station, um, kind of a, a sort, of, sort of this area between hits and, and adult contemporary type stuff. So you hear a lot of like Melissa Etheridge and Michael Bolton and Janet Jackson and that kind of thing. But it was a, it was a good gig. And I was there for four years. You know, it was, it was a good paycheck too. And, and so it was great for, you know, buying records and stuff. And, and, um, and at the same time, I'm kind of keeping tabs on what's happening in, in the local scene and watching, uh, the, the earliest days of, of the, uh, the Halifax indie rock scene kind of, you know, bloom as it were. So that's, that's, and then, you know, and then I've worked in media in one form or another ever since. And these days I'm a, I'm a culture writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. <laughs> and there's a lot of gaps in between there, but that's kind of, you know, for, for, from Dartmouth to across the harbor. It's, that's it's a pretty short journey, but a lot has happened in, in those years. And if if I recall correctly, Stephen, to fill in one of those gaps, you yourself 
are a musician uh, and were involved well, proactively. I wouldn't say are. <laughs> I'd be careful with those verbs because I've not picked up an instrument in quite some time. But, that, All right. you know, I used to dabble. We'll say right. that. You know, I studied and, trumpet in school and then picked up a bass and a guitar and just kind of taught myself a few things here and there and played in a few bands. But it just it was one of those things, once I was working full-time in radio or newspaper or whatever, there was just no time to, to practice or be in a band, so... Right, um, and the da the dabbling occurred in um, if if I, if I, you know, if my sources are accurate, in in one of the <laughs> earliest formations of any pre Sloan band, the Deluxe Boys, featuring Jay Ferguson. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Um, wow. It was uh, the band was uh, originally a trio. I think. Let me get this straight. Um, and. Uh, I came in a bit later and it was sort of, it was, it was kind of loosely formed by a bunch of friends who were actually going to the Halifax grammar school, which is a kind of a private school in the South end of Halifax. And, uh, initially it was, uh, Jay Ferguson, uh, playing guitar, of course. And, and, um, Walter Kemp Jr. Walt Kemp Jr. On drums. Uh, and his dad is a well-known Walter Kemp senior is a well-known, um, music professor and choral conductor and, and even a composer, and he has a, he still has a show on CKDU after all these years. He oh, still wow. does a, the Saturday morning musical box. Um, so oddly enough, Saturdays would begin with, uh, or, or was it the Sunday morning musical? Anyway, the day would start with with Walter Kemp Senior's radio show and end with Brian Wilson's Deluxe Sandbox, which was Jay Ferguson's <laughs> CKDU show um, for a few years there. But um, and yeah, so so and then. Um, Walt Kemp Jr. had to go off to Europe to go to school or something like that. And, uh, and so around the same time, um, Matt Murphy from the Super Friends came in to play drums. And uh, Jay asked me if I had any interest in playing bass. And uh, I didn't even have a bass. They just had a beat up old Squire bass kicking around. And I, I picked that up and, you know, just taught, you know, I'd, I'd learned a few chords on guitar already. So it, just, it was just a matter of, figuring out how a bass worked and that's kind of it. And we, it was, um, you know, there were a few originals of varying degrees of quality. And then, um, you know, mostly we just played a lot of covers and we played a lot of parties. Um, you know, we used to play a lot of shows with the killer clams, which is one of the really fun, uh, indie bands of the time. And, um, you know, they put out a couple of cassettes and then they became a 100 flowers and put out a couple of records under that name. Um, you know, and we played, uh, like at, we played a couple frat parties. <laughs> we played a Dalhousie theater school drama Christmas party in the basement there. And I remember some drunk woman from British Columbia telling us she thought we were like as good as the replacements or something. <laughs> cause we just played, <laughs> cause we were playing all these really sloppy covers of things like, uh, you know, we played Valerie by the monkeys and, uh, wow. we, we would do, if Jay broke a guitar string, sometimes I would do She's On It by the Beastie Boys. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, we did a version of Manic Monday, and all, all kinds of crazy stuff. And then, and then we started, we, we became like this sort of pet opening act at the, the, the Club Flamingo. Greg Clark took pity on us and let us open for like the straight jackets and the jellyfish babies and stuff like that. And, and then, uh, yeah, and then things, you know, and it was just a couple of years, uh, but we we actually played, you know, I think about it, we played quite a few shows and we played parties at, with a, a band called the El Caminos, which is um, another band that Matt was in uh, with Henry Sangalang. 
And uh, I don't know if that's where Henry and Jay met, but and um, and I don't think Chris Mur- Chris Murphy might have been in a version of the El Caminos, but basically Carney Lake Road evolved out of that meeting. We played a few house parties with those guys, and um, and I think uh, basically Carney Lake Road came out of that because basically our singer John Gould he went off to McGill, and uh, you know I I got a, a real gig in radio, and um, and then Carney Lake Road kind of came out of that, and then. Uh, Patrick was in a band. I think he was in a band called Happy Co. At that mm. time, and actually, Patrick was at journalism school with me at, at the University of King's College. He was a year or two behind me. I remember I was giving him assignments because I was technically the 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 arts editor of our you know department newspaper or whatever. He needed a couple <laughs> stories for me, um, and that's how we first met. And then he's like, "Oh, he's, you're in this band with my friend Jay." And Jay I'd known since junior high because, of course, he worked at Old Dan's Records. And I would right. hang out at Old Dan's Records, and basically, um, George Zimmerman, the guy who ran the store, would let Jay run the place on the weekends while he went off to paint houses and make money with his side gigs or whatever. And basically, you know, Jay got paid in records, and I spent my allowance on records. So, you know, we just spend Saturday afternoons just going through whatever was in the racks, and 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 it was a real musical education just to pull pull something out and go, "This looks cool. What does this sound like?" and that kind of thing. And um, and so that's how Jay and I met. Was even like really far back. And, um, yeah. And then basically I went on into media stuff and he went on into music stuff as we all know. Amazing. That's great. Thanks for that. Yeah. Ken and I (laughs) both need to expand our collective, uh, deluxe boys input. Well, there's, there's there's very little record. I mean, there's a couple of gig posters. I think I, somewhere I cut out like this one little brief thing that was in the Herald because somebody rewrote something about a show at the Flamingo and there's like a brief about, I think it was the Deluxe Boys in the Straight Jackets show. I probably stuffed it in a cassette case and then forgot about it. But, uh, but you know, it's not, it's not like we ever, no, nobody ever did a story on us or anything like that. We were just a bunch of college kids mucking around and having fun and playing versions of our favorite songs and attempting to write tunes. You know, probably the coolest tune we ever did was Choose Your Poison by Squirrel Bait. I think that was the, kind of the, the coolest thing we ever did. But, uh, you know, and we had a cover of Hungry Like the Wolf that I don't think ever left the practice space. But, um <laughs> You know, it was it was Fantastic. mostly just just fun, and every once in a while we'd, we'd get forty bucks for playing a show or something like that, and we'd, you know, put it towards another amp or something, and you know, Amazing. buying gear at yard sales and that kind of thing. I just I just imagine in my uh, I just imagine in my dreams like Chris and Jay, you know, bonding over their love of Duran Duran or something. I don't know. Oh, quite <laughs> possible. Yeah, Jay really Jay did dig Duran Duran. He thought they were the new Beatles. <laughs> sort of there you go. not that he thought they were he didn't think they were as good as the Beatles but he thought that <clears throat> at that time you know that's you know they were the phenomenon or the closest thing to the kind of phenomenon the Beatles have been you know the 20 odd years before yeah absolutely and, and and Jay actually played going back to Deluxe Boys for a second on the uh, I said Deluxe Buys that's so funny uh, on the uh, on the Murder <laughs> Records Wrong podcast province. yeah on the Murder Records podcast he played I think a recording of of you guys a couple of episodes ago, I don't know if you've really? heard that. Really? Yeah, I'm shocked. <laughs> I want to say it might have been on either the inaugural or second episode because yeah. mm-hmm. they kind of were going through the history of, you know, the '80s kind of Halifax scene and stuff, and so they played a little bit of their earlier bands, and it was cu- cool to hear. I'd heard the name, uh, but had never heard the music, so so really neat. Um, 
Yeah, thanks for that, man. And 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 Sean, I gotta give you some rock and roll props, my friend, because you've been doing your rock and roll duty for a number of years. I think the last time we saw each other in person, correct me if I'm wrong, this was maybe six years ago. I want to say somewhere thereabouts outside of yeah, outside of Taz, I think. At Taz in Halifax, yeah. yeah I was yeah. trying to rally the troops for a record label I was working for, yeah. and I was trying to get people to show up to this event. You were there, and I appreciate so much that you came. It was so great to meet you in person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then a couple years ago, I saw that New Scotland Yard Emporium was putting out that reissue of Clayton Park by Thrush Hermit. And I'm thinking to myself, they're going to only put out like 20 of these. And how, how do I get my hand on a copy? And I'm like, who do I know who's like physically in relation to that place? And you totally came through like a week I later. I did my I rock get... and roll duty. Buddy, yeah. I opened up this package like two weeks later and it's from you. And you gave me the bag and the receipt and everything. It was like I was there. It was amazing. So well, I got to... Hey. I got to give oh, you your props, man. Thank you. Oh, you're 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 very welcome, man. That's you know that was the least I could do. Like I, I that that message was just you know like it was a call to action. I had to I had to oblige. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was sending up flares. I was like, who do I know? I got to get somebody to help me out here. And so I appreciate I, that, man. I actually wound up having to send out a few copies, like after oh, after yeah? that. Yeah, yeah, I sent out another two or three copies easily. Mm, you were doing you were doing distro there. That's cool. Yo, well, you were, yeah, well, you know, I should have been getting kickbacks for that. Jeez. Joel, if you're listening, no. His ears are burning. His wallet is burning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, just like Stephen did, if you don't mind just giving us a quick little rundown on yourself. and uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I feel like my resume is going to be a lot shorter than Stephen's, honestly. <laughs> and I mean, least of all, like I came into the scene a little bit later than that as well. So, I mean, I, I was born in the mid-70s. I, I lived in Thompson, Manitoba for the first few years that wow. I certainly don't remember. Yeah, I. Um, so my my parents moved to Eastern Passage in the in the mid '80s, or sorry, in the late '70s, just after uh, after that. And I, my dad was a big music guy, so he had a lot of records, and I just started like going through the albums, picking through album covers, and that was my musical education. So like a lot of Steely Dan and Fleetwood Mac, and then I was just kind of left to my own devices. And so my 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 first concert was 1980. I was four years old. And it was Red Rider opening for April Wine on the Harder Faster wow. Tour. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I I have like the vaguest recollections of Red Rider doing White Hot. But as far as April Wine goes, so all I can remember is they had like this massive like lit logo sign on the stage. And like they just sort of like the show started with a bang and they kind of like appeared out of nowhere and all I can I, I, I can remember like the sirens on top of the stage for Ooh What a Night, and I can remember the smell of the hash. <laughs> that it, it was yeah, it was it was interesting. That's but that was my first rock and roll experience, and I only saw like scattered concerts through the eighties. My second concert, my mom took me to see Burton Cummings for my sixth mm. birthday while my dad was away at sea, and. She somehow managed to talk the one of the roadies tearing down at the end of the show. She talked him into getting me backstage to meet him for my sixth birthday. So I have this really awesome photo of my mom and I when I'm six years old with Burton Cummings sitting there with his arm around each of us. And I have like this really ridiculous autographed photo, like a like a promo, like eight by ten. And it's like 
shirtless Burton with a leather jacket and like the hairy chest and like <laughs> so appropriate for a six year old kid. Right. But it was, it was great though. And like, I've, I've actually gotten to, to meet Burton a few times since. And, That's fantastic. And he's always been a super, super nice guy to mm. talk to and like yeah. an absolute music nut. Like this yes. guy, mm. like, He's he's like a fiery furnaces fan. Like that's mm. he he yeah. loves he loves those guys. It's nuts. But anyways, so and then I I my third concert I saw Billy Idol at the Metro Center. Like my parents would take <laughs> me to some pretty interesting stuff. Like, I was at that show. <laughs> hey yeah, and Billy was really drunk. Yep. <laughs> and I, I mean, some, even at eight years old, I can remember that. <laughs> I have some terrible Kodak Instamatic photos. Yeah, from, I have, from like my nosebleed. You can't see anything. Yeah, so well, we had floor seats. My my dad, my dad and I went to buy tickets at the box office when they announced tickets, and like Platinum Blonde were the opening act. So I remember getting to meet Chris Steffler, their drummer, like out in the stands, like before Billy Idol went on. And I remember standing like off to the right of the stage, like in the in the the stands, and and just as the lights went down and like Billy Idol was coming out, and I remember my dad like just taking a quick photo of so the Flash. So I have this really awful photo of like Billy walking to the stage like in the dark with the Flash. But anyways, yeah. So I, I kept going to shows when I could here and there. I saw Melissa Etheridge in in, in eighty eight or whatever that We've covered was. Covered those spaces, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then uh I started sneaking into gigs when I was about sixteen. So the uh the Misty Moon, the uh, the other part of the Marquee in the Moon, that was the first venue that I ever snuck into when I was sixteen years old to do my rock and roll duty and see Kim Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And then I, I actually I was still kind of blissfully unaware of the the local scene for the most part, though, at that point, outside of, you know, hearing about bands that were playing the Misty Moon. Like I wasn't aware of a lot of bands that, you know, like Curdy Lake Road, for instance, weren't on my radar. Hmm. But I, you know, I think it was high school, like grade 11. And uh, my friend Adam in geography class, every once in a while, he'd be like, you know, like, we should hang out sometime. Yeah. And I, I, I saw this band Sloan. I think you'd really like them. And, and, uh, I eventually got to see them at the Peppermint EP release party. My dad was reading the paper one Sunday and he's like, yeah, this, this local band Sloan's playing a, a CD release and it's $10 and you get a copy of the CD and you get to see the show. If you want, I'll drive you over and I'll give you 10 bucks and, and you can go. Sure. <laughs> so I called my buddy Aaron up and, we went over and Adam and his brother Andrew showed up and then I yeah, the Thresherm had opened, Tag opened as well. Tag were in jail before they uh so they still had uh Mel Rusinak on keyboards, I think. So they were a five piece. But uh but I remember Thresherm were Thresherm were great. <laughs> they they like even then, like so I mean like I'm the same age as those guys, so it was kind of cool seeing a band my age that were, you know, like even at that point, like they you know, Joel definitely had something for sure. Like he always had mm -hmm. that front man quality about him. Yeah. Sloan, like Rush Herman at that time, they would have just been in high school too, you're saying. Like, yeah, pretty much, like yeah. 16, 17. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And then Sloan, I remember Aaron had, uh, he'd gotten a Depends undergarment sample in the mail and brought it with. And at one point during the show, he threw it up on stage and Chris wound up like putting it on his head. And like, I think he at least like played part of a song with a Depends undergarment on his head. <laughs> Yeah, but that was that was my first Sloan show, and that that it kind of went from there. And then the second time I got to see them, I had to sneak into the pub Flamingo underage, and it was uh, it was Eric's trip opening for Sloan and opening for Change of Heart. And 
it was the first time I got to see Eric's trip. So I was absolutely blown away by Eric's trip. And uh, Sloan, I only got to see about maybe two thirds, three quarters of their set. And I had to catch the last bus to Dartmouth because as Stephen would know, the buses uh -huh. stop very early in this town, but the bars stay open really late. Yep. So, yeah. So I didn't even get to see Change of Heart for a couple more years. But That's that why was... I had to walk home from that Sonic Youth show. Yeah, I, and so you got to see that Sonic Youth show. I only heard about that years later. I did. It was yeah. I was I was still in high school actually, yeah. but it was like. But I was doing at that point. I was doing a show on CKDU, like in high in like grade twelve or whatever. And it was just like, a band from New York is coming. A band from New York that never happens. And so you yeah. know, no, it wasn't even like, you know, oh, Sonic Youth is coming. It's just a band from somewhere else is coming, mm. and they're playing at NASCAR. And like the show didn't start until like after the buses had stopped running. <laughs> wow. You know, had to walk over the bridge and oh, it was and a rainy night. It was horrible. But, but I mean, uh, to get anything like that here in Halifax, like it's, mm. you know, it would have been a pretty big deal. Least of all, you know, like you said, banned from not here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, maybe the dub rifles might show up from Winnipeg. That was like this, <laughs> but, or, you know, Doug and the Slugs might be playing the Misty Moon. That's about <laughs> as exciting as it got, you know. <laughs> So Sorry, I can't but... shit on Doug and the Slugs too much. I worked for them for two oh, no. weeks when I was eighteen. <laughs> I, I've got cognac in Bologna. I'm not. I'm not throwing shit. <laughs> so at at what point? Because you know you mentioned sort of Halifax having that provincial quality to it. You know, I think we've we've talked about this on this show a couple of times. It's got that provincial quality to it, but at the same time, it's certainly a magnet for culture across Atlantic Canada. So you get bands kind of also migrating towards Halifax. Uh, who wouldn't have had a career for themselves in Fredericton or in Cape Breton or in, uh, you know, even, even, even in Newfoundland. Um, speaking of hardship post, at what point did either of you realize that Halifax sort of had a special scene going? Well, I, I think even like before the whole sort of murder cinnamon toast thing happened, it, it, there was, there was a pretty diverse scene prior to that. I mean, if you look at that out of the fog record that came out, I mean, there's hardcore punk on it. There's kind of yeah. art pop, you know, obviously somebody had been listening to the Cocteau twins you know, and, <laughs> and stuff. It, it, it's a shame. The production on it is, is not great. It, it's pretty, you know, it was produced by some guy who normally did commercials, I think. So, uh, it has a kind of a flat quality to it. And the, the band's, you know, do the best they can. And some of the bands that are on there, that's about as good as they ever sounded anyway. But, um, you know, and, and th there were no two bands the same. I don't think even, hmm. you know, even if you look at like hardcore punk bands and, and there was some early hip hop happening as well. And that was pretty hmm. exciting. Uh, and you know, and, and of course, NASCAD was a big part of, of the whole picture with, with, uh, as being kind of a, a breeding ground for people who had that mix of sort of musical and, and sort of visual, imaginations working over time so it there, there it always seemed like there was stuff happening um you know even if there wasn't always a venue i mean for a while there there was always some form of the flamingo uh because i think right. it went through like three, three or four different incarnations um could you definitely. maybe elaborate could you give our listeners some context on the flamingo sure uh well greg clark uh started backstreet it was called backstreet imports it was basically like a head shop it was like a post they sold posters and t-shirts and a few records, but, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, medicinal supplies, if you will. Um, and, uh, and then he put in, he put in a few video games and that's the only thing that actually made money. 
So he turned it into Backstreet Amusements. Uh, you know, got the, had to get the amusement license and and started this arcade. And um, you know, with the the money from that, he opened up uh, first. He opened up this place called the Club Flamingo, and it was all ages, so he didn't have to have a liquor license. And uh, it was it was on uh, I think it was on Grafton Street. I think it's you know part of the dome com- what's called the dome complex now. Hmm. Um, really, you know, which is yeah. It was, I think it was like where Weinstein and, Ho- but it was kind of like a weird sub basement kind of thing too, but okay. it was kind of like mm. around where Alfredo Weinstein and Hose would go in mm. and, you know, yeah. the Halifax dinner theater or whatever, the Halifax historic feast or whatever. Um, but it was, it was just, you know, at that point it was just kind of like a hole in the wall place. There was like a pinball machine and a pop machine and then maybe, you know, maybe you could buy a bag of chips or whatever, but it was, um, you know, it was a place for bands to play. And then it was kind of where like the sea, the seaweed theater kind of, picked up you know like those kind of bands like you got the lone stars playing there and and that's where the dub rifles from winnipeg would actually play a show and uh i I mean not that there were a whole lot of out of town bands but i think maybe some of the bands from moncton might have played there the robins maybe or um, robins uh what was another there's another one called something time uh blanking now but uh but you know it was and it was those shows were always pretty decently attended and uh, you know, especially with two high schools just on the other side of Citadel Hill, there was always a bunch of kids around to go to shows. Um, and they were all ages, so anybody could go. Uh, and then uh, he and his partners, uh, Derek Honig and Keith Tufts, um, thought, well, you know, let's let's actually, like, make a real place. Like, not just this hole in the wall of picnic tables. Um, and uh, they took over the old uh, Cove Theater on Goddard Street, which had recently closed, and they turned that into the Club Flamingo. And again, it was, you know, they had, had a big stage and it was, you know, a big old movie theater. Um, and, uh, and then they really started bringing in acts from all over the, I mean, John Cale played there, um, mm. legendary pink dots <laughs> played there. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think of all the other acts that, you know, the cowboy junkies played there when they mm-hmm. just had that, their first album out and, and, and lots and lots of other bands. Uh, and they also showed movies and stuff like that. And it was pretty ambitious, but because they didn't have a liquor license, it was still all ages. So I can't imagine they were making a ton of money there. Um, and then, uh, so when they were able to get a liquor license, uh, they sold that either. Well, I don't know if, I think they may have just been renting. I'm not sure. But the, then they moved downtown into the licensed Club Flamingo or Pub Flamingo as it would become um, in the Maritime Center at the corner of... Uh, um, uh, Salter, Salter Street, Street and yeah. Barrington Street. So that's right. that's the one that I snuck into. Yeah, and that's and that's the one. That's the. I mean, the one on Gottingen was great. A lot of great shows happened there. And of course, like like I say, Deluxe Boys. We played a couple of shows there. Um, I don't think we ever played uh, the, the the one that followed up. By that time, Carney Lake Road was on the go, and mm-hmm. uh, and then that bar. You know, they were and you know, they had a more upscale clientele. Like I say, it was licensed. It had a kitchen. They were getting in some, some big name blues acts and sort of roots music acts and world music acts. John Hyatt played a show there, Richard Thompson. Um, but also you had October game with Sarah McLaughlin playing shows there and, and, uh, a lot of local, local bands. And there was a, a famous open mic night where they, because of the union rules, they had to have this house band of all these kind of, you know, old school, uh, you know, just these guys have been banging around the music business for years and years and years. And they would just my, play my first s- band borrowed their drummer a few times. Oh, God. Well, I mean, <laughs> and they would just play the same songs every week because they were just there to pick up a check and they would just play black magic woman and every week. And yeah, and then, and then eventually some other bands would go on in between their sets kind of thing. 
Um, and that, because that was the, un- the union rules, you couldn't just have an open mic night and have people come up on stage because you had to have a union musician on stage in some capacity. So, um, but, uh, you know, but, but a lot of great acts uh, would play those shows. So, I mean, uh, Laura Smith, who became like a well-known folk singer across the country, Peter Zosky's favorite folk singer, she hmm. started playing those shows and got a, got, got a, got some attention. And, and eventually I would, because I was working in radio, I would actually MC shows there, especially oh, wow. during East, East Coast Music Week. Uh, there is footage out there of me emceeing a show by the, the Rankin family. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when they were like, they only had like two albums out and they were playing this showcase in the Club Flamingo. And there's another one of, of me introducing this band called Real World, whose guitarist, uh, Gordy Sampson, would go on to win a Grammy for Jesus Take the Wheel, you know, for writing right. that song. And is, you know, is one of the best known songwriters and producers from this region. So it's, it's just kind of funny, all the stuff that came out of there. Sure. And I, I know you mentioned uh, earlier the Out of the Out of the Fog compilation, which was put out on Flamingo Records. Is it safe to assume that Flamingo Records is associated with the Club Flamingo? Exactly. Yeah. It, was, it was basically like a curated selection of some of the favorite local bands that played there. And it was done in collaboration with CKDU. Um, you know, I don't know if there was a grant involved. I actually have my copy of it here. I could just grab it and see what other credits are on it. But um, that, that was basically it. It was basically between the, the club and CKDU and right. and maybe some other factions. I'd like to move back a little bit more towards that, you know, late 80s period uh, emergence of sort of the proto Sloan bands. And we talked about the Deluxe Boys um, on your end, Stephen. And uh, I know, Sean, that you also mentioned sort of the first couple of shows um, that you'd seen of, of Sloan, which are really, I mean, Looking back, and I think we've all seen this online, there, you know, you can count the number of Sloan shows that were played before they really did get big, almost on one or two hands, right? It wasn't like they were doing this for years and years before they really, uh, before they really hit the hit the sort of Canadian big time. Um, I'm wondering if either of you had actually come into contact with any of so. Stephen, you'd mentioned Carney Lake Road, uh, Henry Sangalang, and there being sort of crossover with those guys. But had either of you, you know, heard of or seen bands like No Damn Fears, or you know, I'd love to know more about Happy Co. and about the ripping convulsions from Sackville. <laughs> Never saw the ripping convulsions, unfortunately, but uh, did see Happy Co. They were they were a fun band, you know, kind of melodic, you know, melodic rock i guess for for lack of a better word right um you know no damn fears was uh that was well, jenny pierce wasn't it was it? jenny pierce and um was dave marsh in that band maybe i think mm-hmm. i think so. um and uh you know that was more sort of singer songwriter type of stuff but but you know with a bit of a kind of an, an, an indie edge i guess um and uh and i saw chris's uh hardcore band aware or spent I forget hmm. which name it went under at the time. They, I think they changed names a couple of times because they kept finding out there are other bands that had the same name. But um, uh, you know, and somewhere I've got a tape of them at the at the um, at the old Club Flamingo on Gottingen. I uh, got like an audience tape that I made of one of their sets, and they were actually quite good. It was the the band with two Chris Murphys. Right. There was right Chris Murphy later from Sloan, and also Chris Murphy from my school in Dartmouth, who we called Zombie Smurf. <laughs> um, <laughs> who gets a who gets a shout out at the beginning of the uh, Jenny Seven Inch? That's right. Oh, yeah. right, of course. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, you know, and they're actually 
you know, they're a pretty tight little outfit. So, um, yeah, I would I love think, to hear that tape. My God, <laughs> I might have it digitized somewhere. I, I know. I, I remember I made a copy and gave it to Chris and he was just flabbergasted that it existed because awesome. I don't think there was a, I don't think he had very much by them and maybe one like practice tape or something like that, but, um, they're pretty great. And then I'm, I'm listening to, of course, yeah, I think they wrote a lot of their own songs. I'm listening. I, I don't recognize any of these songs. And then think at the very end, I think there was like a dag nasty song that I recognized. Like, Oh, okay. But, um, you know, they're, they're trying to be pretty original for the most part. You know, I think that it's it's interesting. You know, we, we've we've spoken about Carney Lake Road on the show before, and um, I know we've heard a lot about it uh, from various sources. And this was sort of even before you were able to do internet research to a to a great degree on the band. I think it was fairly well known that there was this predecessor band with two of the members of Sloan. Um, was it apparent listening to Carney Lake Road in sort of the late '80s that this was a constellation of you know a couple of guys plus plus henry who would sort of from a musical standpoint rise above the rest is that you know is this something where we can see already discrepancies in quality or discrepancies in musicality start yeah well i mean you know they all took it very seriously as opposed to deluxe boys which did not really and and i will say that you know like like Jay did want to get more serious, uh, but then everybody was going off in different directions, and and uh, and that you know that it might you know if, if John hadn't gone to Montreal or you know whatever um, you know maybe it could have continued. Who knows? But I guess for the sake of what what we have now, we're probably glad they didn't. But um, you know he definitely you know I mean Jay was still taking he was taking guitar lessons all the time and really like learning stuff from his favorite records. You know, I, you know, I, I remember him playing Steve Cropper licks all the time. Like that, that, that guitar lick he plays in lines you amend, like he was playing it then. Like he was just, you know, just playing it over and over again because he just couldn't get out of his head. And then eventually he found a song he could put it into. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, he, he was definitely the most serious of them all. Of course, Matt Murphy was serious as well, but of course he would not mm. be, become known as a drummer. Uh, and But he did play guitar in the El Caminos and then eventually Super Friends. And, and Chris was certainly serious about wanting to make music on a more mature level. And, uh, and, and Henry was just a guy who was just a really great musician who just really, you know, who just really clicked with them. So, uh, you know, I think right off the bat, they were pretty tight and they were doing this kind of, kind of mix of rock with a kind of a funky edge to it that didn't suck hmm. because you know the mixture rock meets funk is almost never a good thing hmm. uh you know you know in the long run it, it often doesn't age well but what what they were doing was was pretty unique maybe because they had a bit of a different attitude about what they were doing and and they didn't lean too heavily on one form or another i guess and and they were great live they're a lot of fun to watch um you know and it was you know, at that time, maybe there weren't so many of the underground bands that kind of had that whole package together. Right. And Sean, you know, you'd mentioned the release, the CD release party for Peppermint. And, yeah. you know, you're coming from a perspective, you were a bit of a younger dude, but from what I've been hearing musically very well versed, this is, uh, at what point in 1991 would that, would that have been? Well, this was 92. So it was the it was 92. Of 92. Sorry. Apologies. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because um, there was the here and now compilation. Yeah, which I just, I'd just heard. before. Yeah, like it, well, that that came out when I was in high school because I right. remember I remember underwhelmed actually being pointed out as a song to check out on in particular. 
Right. And I'd say between that and the Thresh Hermit, because uh, the CD version had the Thresh Hermit song on it, This One's Mine, which right. I don't recall that was on the cassette, yeah. but I had a copy of the CD. And Underwhelmed really was the standout track on that, even at that point. Like that was, and I mean, there were a lot of good songs on it, but I really, really liked Underwhelmed a lot. Right. So at this point in 92, was it apparent that this band had something going? I, yeah, well, I mean, even like there were there were labels even sniffing around or around '92, like before Geffen, were there not, Steve? I think like Network was sniffing around at one point. Yeah, well, and, well, Network yeah. definitely was because uh, also uh, the record was wasn't it remastered by one of the guys from Skinny Puppy. Kevin, yeah, I think Kevin K or Kevin no, it was, was Dave Ogilvy. Dave, Ogilvy. Dave, Ogilvy. Yeah, Dave yeah, Ogilvy. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and of course network, because they had signed Sarah McLaughlin, uh, you know, they were, they were certainly keeping an eye on Halifax either through her or through, um, well, Keith Tufts, who was one of the partners in the Flamingo was had, you know, he was kind of tied in with network. And of course, you know, cause he was, I don't know if he managed, uh, October game, which was Sarah McLaughlin's first band, but, but. You know, they were certainly friends and I, you know, he was the one who brought all these network bands to Halifax, which, you know, led to Sarah getting signed to the label. So they were, they were definitely keeping tabs on what was going on here. I, I don't know how serious they were about Sloan. They were, they were a little different than what the label was kind of dealing with. Mm. Although they would eventually put out Grapes of Wrath, which is, you know, maybe not Sloan-esque, but that's certainly more indie pop than, than they had been going. So, um, And, 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 you know, there were, there were label, like, I mean, there were, the major labels had reps in town, um, in Halifax, you know, uh, that would keep tabs on things and keep the head office as a prize of, of, of acts to watch out for. And, you know, I think maybe MCA might've been, uh, which eventually would distribute the Geffen stuff, uh, Hmm. you know, would have had an interest too, I bet. Yeah. And Sean, just as Ken was saying, to go back, I'm, 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 as well as Ken, I'm sure, just like super into this Peppermint release show. Um, it was showing up there, just kind of paint us the picture. Is it like a merch table with like one CD and one shirt well, and like funny, 20 people? or No, well, so funny enough, they didn't actually have the CDs in time for the show. So, <laughs> yeah, so because you were given the choice of getting the cassette or the CD. Mm-hmm. And there were two shows, I think. So there was an afternoon show, which was all ages, because at that point in right. the 90s, there was a clause in the liquor laws where they were allowed to have all ages events in the afternoons. They, it, it was a messy time for trying to be able to get into all ages things that may be held at a bar. So, I mean, that was one thing with Sloan was that they tried to play all ages shows when they could, because they had a lot of people that weren't old enough to get into the bars that wanted to see right. them. And Halifax really didn't have anything in the way of all ages venues. Cafe Olay, I think just opened around mm. 93 or 94. There was no place to go. That's why I was sneaking into bars to see bands play. You know, like I would have to go see Eric's trip at the Double Deuce on a school night. And, you know, like my buddy Adam and I would sneak in before Warren Wesson was on the door at 8.30. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, like there was no way we were getting past Warren. <laughs> so it was it was a different time like as far as that goes. <laughs> So how do you make how do you make the jump? So Shant, I recall your name from Sloanet, which was sort of my first source of um, internet information on the band. I think I, <laughs> I I I joined the mailing list as a lurker, <clears throat> sort of in '96 when when my fandom began, 
Yeah. How how do you bridge the gap from, you know, you're seeing this band for the first time at the Peppermint album release party to really getting into that super fandom uh, mode of, of, of existence? Well, again, I, this is, you know, where my friend Adam comes into play as well, because he had the internet before I did. So he was the one that had discovered Sloan Net at some point, or I, I don't even remember how he discovered it, but that was my introduction to that. And then I eventually managed to get a modem installed in my computer, which took a while to get it running and dial up kind of sucked. But, you know, it was it was really neat to watch SloanNet grow from, you know, just being a small community of people around town here who just wanted to keep each other informed on what was going on as far as gigs and, you know, like releases that might be coming out, how the gig was the night before or whatever. And then all of a sudden you've got people joining up from other parts of the world, like within, you know, a couple of years of that. And, you know, like it, it was a really well connected group of people it was it was really neat you know like a lot of people that were connected on sloan net then like i'm I'm still in touch with a lot of people that i was on sloan net with you know like 25 26 years ago i don't, For... I don't really know like i don't even really recall like what you know like where it really started becoming that much more of a big thing either but i'd say you know like certainly with the release of smeared and within you know and it, it yeah it, it covered you know eric's trip as well like there was another eric's trip mailing list at the time too mm -hmm. but it never seemed to be nearly as busy like you know like eric's trip and bands from monked and everybody else would get mentioned on sloan net more so because i mean yeah. sloan net was certainly a lot more than just sloan as you would probably remember yeah but sloan were certainly a big part of it you know certainly at the beginnings of it anyways such a huge community too i mean i remember when we chatted a couple of years ago when we were hanging out, I have a memory of us talking about, like for me growing up in Southern Ontario, like, you know, when I, Sloan were kind of the cornerstone band where I went from being kind of like, you know, I like music and I like some, and I, and I like, a, I'd like watching much music to see all whatever the, the latest singles were and stuff, but I wasn't like a big album guy. Like I didn't love a band yeah. where you like, you love everything, you know, where yeah. they're just kind of like totally engrossing in a way, in basically the way that I got into Sloan. They were kind of that band for me that kind of just lit that match and lit that fire. And, um, you know, but for me in Southern Ontario, watching much music and seeing all this stuff happening on TV, just Halifax seemed like a million, it might as well have been like another country, you know? Yeah. Um, and but we felt that way with the rest of the country as well, because yeah. we kind of, it's, it's almost like we had to have our own scene because we didn't get a lot of the bands that I wanted to see here in Halifax, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I really went through a phase in the nineties where most of what I saw was local bands because we didn't get the caliber of acts that, you know, were deemed to be so big. Otherwise we just, you know, we got to see what we got to see. Yeah. Jay's talked about that in the past where he said the line, you know, like if you wanted to see a band, you had to start a band kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, Eastern Canada dates, you know, for, for a touring band ended at Quebec city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I remember we were talking a couple of years ago about, um, I think you had even mentioned like that you would be there going to the murder office, for example, like and for me, the murder yeah. office was like the inside of mock-up scale down or something. And, um, <laughs> would, would this have been the one like where, cause I remember Chris was saying something about cafe. Mocha. Well, there was the, Mo yeah, cafe Mocha. Yeah. So that one was down on, uh, Granville Street, which is, hmm. it was in the building below the Misty Moon, was it not, Stephen, I think? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. so that that was the first Murder Records office that I really remember, and I think that mm -hmm. was where the Party album 
that's right. crowd was recorded up yeah that's where the well. crowd yeah. and the photo the cover photos were taken there as well yeah so I, I mean i have recollections of at least like going in there like i remember when the underwhelmed 12 inch single was due to come out and talking to jay and he's like yeah you know like we're supposed to be getting some from from mca in europe so you know like just pop around sometime and if you know once we get them all I'll, I'll give you one so like that's that's how i got my copy of the the, the underwhelmed 12 inch years ago wow. so it's got like a little promotional sticker on the top corner mm. from mca europe <laughs> crazy and then then they moved i think the next office was the roy building after yeah. that yeah yeah and that one i just remember you'd go in there and there were just always people hanging around but chris and jay were almost always there colin mckenzie would usually be kicking around sometimes like i think was uh is a decent management angie benwick was that run out of there as well steven uh probably <laughs> i don't i couldn't I, tell you for sure i you know i've i have a memory of what the office looked like and then generally who'd be hanging around there but but mm. uh yeah the specifics like that I, I i i couldn't i couldn't honestly remember like i remember seeing the like the merch the merch closet once and just like you know chris opening this door and it was just like a closet full of like you know all of the murder records cds records seven inches whatever they were selling at the time it was it was pretty wild to see that <laughs> i mean yeah. I, I i used to go there every so often because well i mean like i say jay and i were friends since junior high we would just hang out together and do stuff and um and also for a while uh discord records which uh yeah. jay actually used to work at mm. from time to time uh moved to its second location in the basement in of the, the basement. roy building or the, the, the not the basement mm. but the the grand the ground level, level yeah. entrance so you know it, it would be pretty common to go to go to discord and hang out and usually some of the people from from the Murder records would come down just to shop, peruse, or drop off. If they had some new stuff come in, they'd put it on the rack there. And um, was Chris Thompson from Eric's Trip working there at one point too? I think. Uh, I don't remember Chris working at Discord. I remember like Tracy Stevens, who played bass in a number of groups um, in town, worked there, and uh, Patrick's. Uh, uh, well, I guess his his ex-wife Sandra worked there and yeah. you know, lots well, of, she lots worked of... at Sam's as well. At yeah. Point. And Jay oh, wow. worked at Sam's too. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Right across the funny, street from some, the Roy building. Some yeah. funny trivia there that I, I was told recently, I think it's the Blackpool days and days video. Chris is actually wearing a discord shirt in that. Cause I know there's some footage of the guys early on and Jay's wearing a discord shirt, but uh, anyway, whatever, just some fun trivia. there. For you there. <laughs> Nice. I, I remember being in Toronto once and seeing copies of, of the, the Blackpool album that MCA put out and it, it had like a featuring Chris Murphy from Sloan sticker on it. <laughs> you know uh, what? If you saw that at Sam's, I might have actually done that. Was that like late 90s or anything? It was in Toronto. No, it was somewhere okay. on Queen Street. It wasn't at Sam's. Okay, because I remember finding some <laughs> copies of, uh, I think it was the uh, the Seahorse. We, we found a box of 25 copies of the seahorse and I was just throwing them up in the Sloan bin, just like features uh, Chris Murphy. AC's only on one song, I think, but still. Well, I think he plays in the whole, but yeah, there's only like one or two songs where his vocals are. Yeah. He prominent. sing. he takes yeah. a verse on we, the living, I think. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I'm talking about the, the seahorse, the follow oh, the seahorse. Yes, oh, yeah. I, right. see. I know he's at least on Holloway Joe, but I, and I mean, that's just like a free for all with a bunch of people on it. I think. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah. Anyways, um sean jumping back to sloan net um i only know this from lore and from hearsay but i recall that there was a tribute compilation in the works and i want to get this answered once and for all because rob 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 and i 
saw this in the fan Q and A that we did, uh, printed off of the whatever website from 1997. You know, the question: When will this fan compilation from Sloanet finally be available? Uh, maybe you could shed some light on that for us. I can. So this tape was supposed to have come out. It was called Laser Me Do Sloan. And it does exist. I have actually, yeah, I, I know. my. So this this compilation, if I recall correctly, was put together by Tara DaCosta, who was a Sloanet member from Ottawa, and Tara Lee Witchin, who was a Sloanet member out of, she was living in Alberta at the time, and she's currently living here in Truro, Nova Scotia. Uh, but anyways, um, I don't know why the project fell apart, because the tapes exist. <laughs> I've seen the mythical box of tapes and I've seen the zine. I have one copy of the zine and one copy of the tape. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So it exists. Cause we need main... to digitize this. It, it, well, I want to talk to Tara and I want like Tara Lee and I want to mm. see if, if, cause I know she had the masters that were at least sent to her and I want to see if she'd be willing to either let me have a go at like, at least like dumping them down again. Mm. I ran off a copy of the tape. So, I mean, if, if it's just a matter of the tape, it exists. I, I, that's, that's not a problem, but I'd like to try and at least get the original copies of the tapes and see if we could get something better happening out of it. So, and, and further to that, this uh, this recent copy of uh, or the, the Rick White doing the the covers mm. of the Peppermint mm. EP, mm. I I was talking to Rick about this through Facebook, and I mentioned that once I heard his version of Lucky for Me, I it it dawned on me that I'd asked him if he wanted to do a cover for this tape, and oh, wow. he came back with a cover of Lucky for Me, <laughs> which if I recall correctly didn't make the final tape because I don't remember if I didn't manage to get it to the Terras in time or what. So this was actually the, the nucleus for Rick covering the Peppermint EP was him coming across this copy of Lucky for Me that he'd forgotten why he recorded it all those years ago, but mm. that's why. So Rick actually recorded a copy of that for the tribute wow. album that never came out. Um, I think there's a, a really loose recording of Chris Murphy doing a version of snowsuit sound on the tape. Wow. Um, there's a snippet of Lou Barlow singing underwhelmed after a Sebado gig. It's it, like, I, I wound up recording a cover of, of guidance counselor for it. That was like, so I, yeah, so it exists. I'm going to see if I can try and push that along. Cause the, the other crappy thing is, is that people paid for it years ago and right. it never materialized. So right. I don't even know who out there was still waiting for a copy, but maybe we can finally make this happen. Yeah. Comment on this on when we post this episode. If you're out there and you didn't get your copy, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a few people out there, much like I paid for a Sloan Net T-shirt back in the day, and I never got that. Aww. So, well, we got it. We got it. <laughs> I don't want to try to monetize on the back of this band or whatever, but if we can get some <laughs> things together here, some Sloan Net stuff, just to make sure the appropriate people are covered, you know, accounts payable. <laughs> But yeah, so the Laser Me Do Sloan does exist. It's just, let's, let, yeah, we'll see if we can make it happen. So it's, you know, this this would have been around, uh, what was this, 95? Uh, yeah, I think somewhere thereabouts. 
Right. So you're you're watching the band emerge from this from being a flash in the pan Geffen uh phenomenon and then re-emerging with uh with the release of one chord to another, very much to um reappraisal from from a Canadian perspective and certainly from much music perspective. What's it like watching a band that you basically have grown up with literally uh take Canada by storm and take much music by storm? How how does that feel from a local perspective? It was it was really cool. I mean, you know, this was this was the first band that I ever actually felt like they were my my band because, you know, they're from my hometown. They're signed to an international recording contract and, you know, they at least seem to be getting some traction. So it was it was really neat to see this happening. And I, you know, like I did I didn't feel like I was. Well, it was pretty exciting. I mean. Yeah. You know, I mean, when they, you know, when they come back from one of their earliest tours and you saw how just being on the road had made them a better band, um, mainly because a lot of bands from, from this part of the world, uh, would go out on tour and it would basically destroy them <laughs> because, you know, the, the, because there wasn't that circuit for indie bands at that time. And they, they'd book these shows that, that, that wouldn't be promoted. And, you know, a, a lot of bands that attempted to tour in those days would, would end up, you know, probably either breaking up before they got home or, or not long after. So, you know, the fact that Sloan could go on the road, actually get crowds outside of the region and come home a better band was like a major triumph. Uh, you know, like I, re- I remember, like, I remember one of the first indie bands to go on tour at Dog Food, which is one of Chris's favorite bands from, from the eighties, late eighties in Halifax, you know, they did a tour and it was kind of a disaster, you know? Um, that just kind of spiraled, uh, you know, into this, uh, you know, kind of sad state of affairs by the time they got to BC or by the time they were heading back from BC. So, you know, it just, it just seemed like it was this un, this daunting prospect to try and play shows, you know, outside of your comfort zone. And they were, you know, certainly one of the first acts that, uh, that got past that. And, uh, you know, obviously having the support of a major is the, the difference. I mean, mm. you know, you're going to get promoted and, you, you know, there, there was already some, if not commercial play, then certainly the college stations were supporting the band and, um, and, you know, playing those shows and, and knowing how to play for audiences that didn't necessarily love them right from the get go, you know, that's, that's a big learning curve. And they really, really, uh, leaned into it and, and, and made the most of it. Yeah. Wasn't there that uh, that bus tour from Halifax that uh, drove down to Boston or something to see them with the Lemonheads? You went on that, did you? Well, I I didn't I didn't go on a bus tour. It was just uh, me and Jay's girlfriend Lisa. Uh, just the two of us trekked down to see them and play this girls' college in Manchester, <laughs> New Hampshire. Because uh, I seem to recall there was some sort of like two hundred dollar like bus trip. That yeah, there could... uh, there might have been. That sounds really familiar. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I didn't go on that. But but no, Lisa. And I drove to see them in, in, um, Manchester, New Hampshire. Okay. And they were playing in like a small, it was like a small theater, like a, like a soft seat kind of theater. And, uh, and so we got there early and we were just basically hanging out with them and, and, uh, and the Lemonheads, you know, hanging out with Evan Dando, who was just wow. doing, sitting there playing old country tunes on, on the guitar, uh, <laughs> backstage and stuff. And at that time, uh, they, at the, um, it was the very tail end of touring for Smeared, I believe, because they were already starting to work on songs for Twice Removed. And in fact, I think they had some of the fan mail that became Pen Pals, the song. The so stolen to, fan mail. 
the stolen fan mail. I seem to recall nice. um maybe it was Patrick having having some of these letters they <laughs> that they taken from the sub pop office or whatever it was. And um, you know, I, I feel like that song was taking shape or I was asking them about some of the songs they were uh because I wasn't there in an official capacity. I was just there to, to see them. And uh, and they put on a great show. And the Lemonheads, of course, were touring. Um, it's a shame about Ray. It's a shame about Ray. And, yeah. uh, and they had that great Australian bassist, Nick, with them and stuff. And that was a fantastic show as well. And um, yeah, it was that was a great trip. Great road trip. And uh, like I say, that I don't know if they were, but I don't know if they were playing new stuff from Twice Removed quite yet. But the, certainly they were in the, in the writing phase. Because they, you know, they were, you know, they, they had all this time on the bus and they were trying to make the most of it, I guess. There is One footage. Thing I, oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say there is footage just as a little button on that. There is footage of them doing an early version of Coax Me, I want to say, towards the end of that tour, maybe, where it's just sort of like a straight ahead 4 4 stomper. But anyway. Interesting. No, I was just going to mention uh, one thing that I do remember was uh, before Twice Removed came out, uh, that's what been a, so Twice Removed came out in what, October of 94, I think? Somewhere thereabouts. Hmm, that would make sense towards the later half of 94. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when uh, when Greg Clark opened his new club after the Double Deuce, which started off as Brunswick Hall because they weren't licensed, the second gig there was Dreamcake uh, CD release for Jail. And they wound up having, I think there was a band called The Square Pegs that were supposed to open. And I can't remember <laughs> why they didn't open. But Sloan were brought in at the last minute. I'd happened to go see 5440 the night before, and they were passing out these like handmade flyers. And there was like liquid paper over whatever band and Sloan written. I'm pretty sure it's in Chris's handwriting. <laughs> but anyways, they played nine of the 11 songs from Twice Removed. Oh, wow. So this would have been in July, I think. Sure. And that's all they played. So I remember this is the only time I have ever seen a Sloan gig where there were just kind of like people scattered around sitting on the floor. And like, you know, there was like a, a CTV cameraman or ATV as it were here, like just, you know, like filming the CD release footage and stuff. And like, he had no problem getting around people sitting on the floor to, to film footage of, of the show that night, which was kind of, it was weird, but it was really cool. Like hearing, you know, like all of these new Sloan songs before the album came out. And uh, like I, I don't even. I, yeah, they were pretty close to what they would have been because I think the album would have been recorded by then for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember there was some there's some great footage. It's it's so it's it's rare now that we hear you know we get to hear something new before it comes out. I remember in '97, mm-hmm. I want to say, there's a thing on Much Music where they were playing Halifax at some hall, and they're doing like Iggy and Angus before it came out, and I was just like, that oh my probably God. would have been the Lord Nelson, maybe the Halifax yeah, on Music right. Festival '97. Hmm. That was right. that was yep. a pretty loose show. I don't remember that being a particularly good show, honestly. <laughs> and I even remember Chris telling me beforehand that they were very unrehearsed and it was mostly going to be new stuff and it was going to be really, really rough. Mm. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's the show that you're talking about. Yeah, there's a great interview on uh, online with Chris and Jay. Mike uh, Campbell is talking to them, and Chris is talking about mm. living at the Lord Nelson. I think at some point back in the day, <laughs> he had like a hot plate and or something. And a yeah, it or something. used to be. It actually used to be cheap to stay yeah. there, which it isn't mm. now. But they had these mm. crappy little rooms. Yeah, Johnny um, Favorite was living there for a yeah. while, wasn't? Yeah, they had these crappy little 
dingy rooms that you know they weren't certainly weren't the nicest and i i certainly haven't been in a hotel room there in a long time i, I think it's all been completely remodeled yeah but um, well paul mccartney stayed there so if that gives you any idea how much it's probably yeah. a little more upscale <laughs> well, they, now yeah well they definitely would have had their nicer suites too but, i mean mccartney was there after the remodel but yeah 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 i i remember I remember hanging out there once with the Grapes of Wrath because they were stuck in Halifax. They were actually flying to England the next day. Wow. And, but they, were, they had a day in Halifax, nothing to do. And so I brought over a VCR and all my bootleg Kinks videos. <laughs> we we, nice. we just hung out in the hotel suite and played these Kinks videos they'd never seen before. And, and that was a really fun act. But the room was just this kind of narrow, depressing, <laughs> like, oh, you know, just, you know, I always thought the Lord Nelson would be something ritzy and it definitely wasn't. It's it kind of <laughs> and kind of circling back a little bit, this is sort of a question for both of you guys. I remember there's a there's some quote from Jay from a few years back where he talked about kind of just as, and this is maybe true of their 96 sort of explosion as well, but especially in the early 90s, like 91, 92, when they're, when they're on the news and they're sort of like the next big thing in Canada officially. And he talked about there being like an early backlash within that first year, like people being like, Oh, I'm tired of hearing about those fucking guys. Like they're just everywhere, you know? And um, so my, I was, my first question was going to be your thoughts on that. And then second part two to that would be um, super friends talked about like, or Charles Austin talked about seeing that ascent of Sloan kind of lighting a fire under, under another, under other bands and kind of getting them to go, well, look, these guys are doing something. Let's pull something together like really quickly instead of, you know, uh, capitalize on that uh, ascent, on that spotlight that was on Halifax. So any thoughts on any of that? Well, I mean, Sloan certainly seemed to be, you know, like they, they were willing to give all these other bands a chance being on Murder Records and stuff, too. They were willing to take bands like Hip Club Groove out on the road, which, you know, like throw a hip hop band with, you know, like a band that sounded like My Bloody Valentine and stuff like that just mere <laughs> years earlier. It's, you know, like that's one thing that, you know, Halifax had for a while, too, was that you didn't really the bands didn't have to be the same kind of genre. It was always a very, you know, like it doesn't matter you support your friends you you know it was a very it was always a very supportive scene here in Halifax and that's one thing that I always really appreciated about that it introduced me to a lot of different bands because you know I've always liked a lot of different music much like Stephen too and you know like it, it really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff that I was willing to you know check out like I wasn't much of a country fan for instance and I started going to see Little Art and Hog at Miss Ten Cent Wings you know which was Matt Murphy from the Super Friends Chris on drums and uh Charles Austin on guitar and Tracy Stevens on bass. And I mean, like they played some pretty, pretty ridiculous originals <laughs> for sure. Psychedelic Chicken is still one of my favorites. And I don't know that there is actually a recording of that one at all, which really kind of bums me out. But, uh, you know, like they did some great, great classic country songs, you know, like Whiskey River, um, Jackson, like they, they, they were a fantastic band. They really opened my eyes to checking out old country. Mm. Uh, if yeah, anybody's got a copy of psychedelic chicken out there uh, let us know <laughs> we, we gotta make sean stay over here come on you smoked that grass kid off my lawn <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they ever did a studio session to my they knowledge. have the only song i ever remember them recording in the studio was a cover of uh oh shit it was a kind of, it was a christmas cover and it oh, was on the cinema daddy's Coast. drinking up our thank christmas, you maybe no that was jail where's was, my copy of Santa looked a lot like Daddy. Daddy, yeah. Was that an original or is that a cover? No, that's uh, Buck Owens did that too. Okay, so. yeah, that's. I think that's the only. I think that's the only recording that exists as a studio recording. I think they had planned to release something, but it never happened. 
least of all like there was a you know they were supposed to do a double live at the oasis as a joke but that never happened <laughs> i do have their uh, live at the cohen set when they open for al tuck though so i've got that oh nice set but they do honky tonk modulations oh that was such a good song <laughs> and his prog version of on the road again i remember seeing them do uh they did a country version of uh iron man by black sabbath <laughs> and then I, I think that was the same show where uh orton died of a heart attack on stage and then uh chris whose character was uh omar dutchy schwartz got up from the drum kit and like took the american flag that was draped over the uh the kick drum and like draped it over orton and brought him back to life for the encore mm. it was it was it was amazing <laughs> That's a that's a classic Murph move for sure. Oh, it was yeah. <laughs> but yeah, do you guys recall any sort of early backlash at all? People around town just oh, sort of completely turned off. Oh, by yeah. them? I not not so no. much locally. Mm. Um, but I I could see maybe outside of the region people getting tired about hearing about the Seattle of the East or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. <clears throat> whatever. But I mean, they on the other it. hand, that's that's around the time that Sloan were actually starting to gain more traction with much music too, though, because the good and everyone was getting a lot of airplay. Uh, the video for everything you've done wrong, like that's mm. you still hear that on classic rock radio as well. Mm. Yeah, you know, like the, I, I mean, personally, when that when one chord to another came out, that was that was really refreshing for me. I was I couldn't get enough. But I mean, mm-hmm. again, I was also a pretty diehard Sloan fan. <laughs> I, I imagine maybe, you know, if there was backlash, it might have been from some of the more kind of seasoned industry veterans who couldn't figure out why they couldn't get any traction because they've been around for so long. Uh, from us, uh, here are these young upstarts, you know, from art school or whatever, <laughs> getting all this attention and getting signed, you know, when that's what that had been the dream for so many local bands for so long. And, you know, I'm talking about bands that were trying to go for real mainstream success because there were a lot of those that uh, have kind of, you know, kind of fell by the wayside. You know, and they were trying really hard to kind of do the formulaic rock that they thought would bring them fame and fortune. Um, you know, and, and here come these guys playing this noisy shoegaze stuff that were compromising know, they, their sound. To yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and 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 so there there might have been a backlash in, in that corner, especially as the kind of East Coast music industry, because that that there's this kind of parallel track between the, the so-called Halifax pop explosion, but also this kind of East Coast music association industry kind of world where you had the Rankin family and, and uh, you know, Rita McNeil and, and, and so on. It's kind of, so there was this kind of established commercial uh, kind of East coast based music world happening at the same time, all this other stuff was happening, but you know, it, it wasn't, they were kind of like parallel tracks really. Um, you know, they'd occasionally meet at the East coast music awards where you saw, um, Heather Rankin asking Chris Murphy how to how to look grunge or whatever, <laughs> you know this kind of stuff. I'm not. I'm not even making the this powder up. blue that, tuxedos. That, that was that was yes, exactly. Doing rock is my life. Um, I mean, this kind of stuff was was actually happening. So uh, it was it was kind of a strange time. Mm-hmm. Maybe <laughs> you know, to touch... ha- half the people wanted to sell out, and the other people didn't want to sell out. Right. But maybe, maybe to touch further on that point, you know, I've been giving a lot of thought to this because when I moved to Halifax, um, I was really surprised. And this is at a point in time well after this wave of of what we're talking about here. But I was very much surprised coming from an Ottawa perspective, which sets the bar very low uh, at just how vibrant the local music scene was. And, you know, I, I've been thinking, is Sloan a product of that vibrant music scene as you'd mentioned already having its genesis in sort of the 80s and uh you know 
running parallel to things like the East Coast Music Awards happening for the first time, etc. And to what extent is the Halifax music scene also a product of the band Sloan reaching what it did reach in 1992 and 93, getting onto a major? That's a good question, because I mean, I feel like Sloan, uh, I mean, they had management that had ties to that, you know, legit music, for lack of a better word or whatever. Not that Sloan wasn't legit, but, you know, that they, I think they, I think the band was kind of aloof of all that sort of industry stuff, uh, at least on the local level, maybe not so much with the labels in Toronto and so on, but um but at the same time, they were tied to it by their, their management also handled some of the more commercial acts. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think th- they didn't want to get too closely tied into that or anything too provincial or whatever. Um, you know, especially as they, they, I think they had bigger ambitions and <laughs> than, than, than a lot of the bands and, and artists applying their trade at that time. So, um, but at, at the same time, they did serve as an example of, you know, how you could, you know, make music on your own terms and kind of keep your integrity and all that kind of thing. And they were one of the shining lights in, in that regard. But I mean, to that end too, like by by the mid to, well, by the late 90s, I guess, it, it almost felt like a lot of the bands that had really sort of kept Halifax afloat as far, you know, Thrush Hermit were gone, the Super Friends mm-hmm. were gone, the Inbreds were, were no more, Eric's Trip had broken up. I know they're Moncton, but Halifax by extension. Mm-hmm. It, it, and I like I moved away, so I felt like I was a little disassociated with the scene for a while too. But I mm. just felt like the scene kind of fell apart for a little while. But then kind of it, but I mean they always seemed to ebb and flow as well because I found that you know like even through the two thousands it started picking up again. Yeah, or at least at Definitely. least it felt that way locally. Anyways, mm. you know like I, I yeah I mean the last ten fifteen years I've you know like I've really enjoyed getting out and seeing bands again. And speaking of moving away, I was going to, the next thing I was going to ask was going to be a perspective, maybe a local perspective. Uh, as we get through the, er, the mid to late nineties, obviously Andrew is essentially living in Toronto, like right away. You know, he's just like, he yeah. split, yeah. split town. Um, but as the guys, you know, edge towards the two thousands, each of them are kind of individually moving away. And was there maybe a local perspective from friends and fans kind of just like either, Hey, where are you guys going? Or, you know, like, you know, we get it so long. Good luck. Chris has written, you know, famously about having to add, you know, 902 to his little black book. Like he's just having to update all of his phone numbers now because he's in a different place. I mean, I, I, I kind of got that they, you know, like they needed to sort of try and continue that. I mean, they, they still managed to stay successful after, you know, like through, through the nineties and two thousands as well. I mean, Halifax, was almost like just a pit stop or something i guess in some ways but you know like we certainly benefit from it and they still like you know they they come to town like it was always it was always great to see who would come out of the woodwork when sloan would come and play a halifax show again and you know like even like we're we're, we're usually set on the on the second leg of a tour when they come through town now and you know but it's always it's always a good show when they come home as well and it's always good to catch up with old friends I've never seen them out east. Um, obviously, just like plenty in Ontario, and then a little bit in the states. But you kind of hear these stories about, you know, you've seen Sloan, but then they're seeing them in Halifax. You know, like it's a just completely different experience. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, again, it's. It's. I, I remember Patrick telling me once that Halifax always seemed to be a money loser for them because they had so many people that would want to come out to see them yes. play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's. 
it's it's you know and like it's sometimes we'll get like an odd you know like an odd ace in the whole song from you know like one of the like the peppermint ep or at least something from smeared just you know like something that you don't expect to hear for you know like the people that have been around for a long time mm-hmm. um one one thing that i found was kind of weird i went to see sloan play in boston around 2011 i think was that at tt's no it was at uh it was in Alston. I'm trying to remember if it was the Great Hall. Because I was going to say I was at the TG the Bear show. Anyway, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, <laughs> this one they were they were playing with UMI from Australia. Oh, okay, yeah. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Sloan play in the states, if I recall. No, I'd seen the I'd seen the Buffalo show after Edgefest in '95, um, but this show was the first time I'd ever seen their their B list show, where it was songs that were geared more to the American audience. So the the set list leaned more to the later stuff and there was no coaxby there was no money city maniacs there were none of the recognizable songs that they just can't get away with not playing here yeah like i think like i think the only time i ever saw them play a set like that where they didn't rely on you know having to play underwhelmed this would have been pretty early on was when they were still technically broken up they played the halifax on music festival in 95 Mm. and they weren't billed but it was just kind of one of those, if you heard about it, you knew to get down to the Gravity Club. And they played on a bill with a band called Trike. And I don't, State Champs were on the bill too, I think, which was members of what became North of America. Uh, but anyways, they uh, they played as the Sloans. <laughs> and they, I remember they did a Kearney Lake Road cover. They did their version of Hot Smoke and Sassafras by Bubble Puppy um oh gosh i think they played amped like they played stuff that they just generally wouldn't play and i mean you know this is before one chord to another after twice removed but they just really stuck to a a strange set but it was it was great it was by far one of the the cooler sets that i've ever seen them play yeah take me back take me back to that buffalo 95 show if you don't mind because i mean this is officially like they just played edge fest so buffalo was supposed to be their last show ever right was well, there much it, was there much talk about that no not really because edge fest was really the show that everybody was talking about hmm. you know like this is sloan's final show buffalo was just kind of a footnote that you know like it like i i think there were a handful of people from toronto that drove down we just we knew about it so we drove to buffalo the day after edge fest to go to that show they were playing with spirit of the west it was the that the, yeah they were opening for spirit of the west i don't remember if there were any other bands on the bill or not but it was the chippewa street festival <laughs> and i remember that the crowd was like it was certainly packed but it was it was dead like nobody was really so into it till the end of the show i think I, if i remember they might have closed with under I'm, I'm blanking right now off the top of my head but i think they closed the show with underwhelmed and you know that was the song that got people going was this the show that was like outside like on a street? yeah yeah because yeah, i think yeah. the, i think a photo from this show is on the cover of have not been the same right it's, it is and i'm in cover. that crowd shot somewhere oh yeah. okay amazing we gotta we gotta <laughs> find you yeah i'm I'm in there somewhere <laughs> but yes that's definitely that that's the show is that also uh, the show where they took the audio oh no i think this might be a different show no that's edge fest okay yeah right yeah see i the always thought that was dave day. bookman opening that but that's not right. dave bookman that's uh who was that that does the intro he's oh, talking about how it was dave bookman that was supposed to be there but 
and I'm trying to remember who it was. Yeah, the video that I've seen of it cuts in with him saying the intro, so I don't know what the preamble is, but hmm. yeah, yeah it's I've neat heard to the see. preamble on. I have a bootleg recording of it somewhere that I oh, don't amazing. remember. I, I yeah, I'll I'll find it one of these days. But <laughs> so many things to digitize. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we're in the year 2021 now. It's been 30 years since this band had its first gig. You know, you guys were at the genesis of it all. What's it like? So, from, some more than others. <laughs> some more than others, Stephen. Um, you know, my my girlfriend was at that show as well. Actually, oh really? Oh, yeah. at the first show. Oh, cool. Yeah, what, but the she NASCAD wasn't one. The, the NASCAD one. Yeah, she and she apparently wound up on stage with Wolf Blitzer's gas mask as well. <laughs> <laughs> but she she'll, wasn't doing she'll, the. She'll be she our guest doing in the, the puppet episode. show. She wasn't doing oh, yeah. it. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways, okay. yeah. Um, so you know you're both you're both very much tied to the roots of what this thing has been for the past three decades how does it feel this is a cheesy question but it's 3 30 in the morning where i'm at how does it feel <laughs> you know having been in this thing for 30 years plus invested in in this thing listening to new material from sloan in you know 2020 2021 i think it's just amazing how they can kind of keep reinventing themselves you know like uh, the, the last couple of records have been so good um yeah. uh I, i'm just like you know I, you know maybe parallel play wasn't as good as the records on either side of it but it's not like uh there have been a lot of major you know downfalls yeah. along the way musically anyway like i mean I, mean, I, I think commonwealth is one of the strongest records they've done in years i i, I 48 portraits like andrew opening the shows with 48 portraits oh that was pure Insane. balls i loved that you know i got to see a couple of shows on that tour and like i i looked forward to that each time that i i knew he was going to be opening the show with that that was such a ballsy move and it was great and i i, I think everybody that dislikes that song is wrong <laughs> I, I have yet to meet anybody who dislikes it, but uh, I've got I, a, I know I've got, a couple of people, but yeah. Well, I've got a knuckle sandwich for them. But anyway, yeah, I mean, well, like, hey. <laughs> the, the, the crazy thing, I mean, this is sort of what we're talking about about in this podcast in its genesis as well is like, you know, it's it's an appreciation of the band, but it's also kind of letting them know how much we love them. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're they're completely peerless as far as I'm concerned, you know, like yeah. being around. And I mean, to have the same four members after 30 years and still be quality and still yeah. be putting out new albums and being relevant and you know, fantastic. Yeah. I, I think the thing that comes across is that they, as musicians still love music. They still love discovering yeah. new music on, mm -hmm. on, on their own mm -hmm. levels. And they love, you know, promoting, um, new stuff as well. And, 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 uh, you know, that they haven't, uh, I mean, they can be cynical on a certain level just cause the business does that to you, but they're not cynical about what they do themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't have a time to make the donuts, <laughs> you know, approach to, to writing or, or recording or, or performing. And, and uh, you know, I, and I think I, I think they consider themselves pretty lucky to have been able to do what they have done for so long. And, um, you know, I'm glad that, uh, you know, that they're getting to stretch their wings with other side projects and things. I mean, it's unfortunate about the whole COVID thing, uh, yeah. you know, robbing us of shows and things like that. And, you know. Uh, you know, among the least of the problems that we've had during COVID. I mean, obviously we've lost a lot more than that, but, um, but yeah, you know, Patrick's I, been I, doing the fuzzed out project. Yeah, exactly. Tons have yeah. a new record coming out. Like there's still activity and I mean, they're still fresh. I'd like to see Jay do something. I'd like to see Andrew do something on the side there as well. Like that's, 
It's funny. That's we we with the Sloancast account. It's kind of funny. We get a little. We get (laughs) audience feedback every now and then. And I got to tell you, one of the one of the main topics is like, when are we getting a Jay Ferguson solo album? I swear, everybody (laughs) talks about this. (laughs) So maybe we can maybe maybe we can kind of put that together with like a Deluxe Boys reunion. Mm. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Got to dust off that bass. (laughs) How many inches of dust are on that bass, Stephen? I wish it. Oh, I found this crappy little. I the the bass is actually sitting in the corner behind me, um, but uh, I uh, unfortunately I, I I hooked up this crappy little like ancient webcam and it never it didn't come on. Maybe it doesn't work with Windows Ten. Probably. But, uh, <laughs> I had to buy a new laptop for this. So. Oh my god! <laughs> no, I. <didn't. laughs> this show is not monetized in any. No way, reimbursement. So. <laughs> Now, now I've lost my train of thought, but um, the oh, bass. sorry, the bass. No, I'd, yeah. Well, this, yeah, I was wondering about Jay doing a solo record because I know I know he does like to sort of mess around with stuff at home with equipment and that kind of thing. He's maybe not as diligent about it as Patrick and Chris. You know, I always thought maybe he'd do more production type stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's such a fan of of like record producers in general. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I remember you know, him listening to Elvis Costello records and trying to figure out what Nick Lowe was doing on those <laughs> Costello records and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and I think he probably has a good head for that sort of thing, but, uh, but I, I don't know that he's always been that interested in doing a solo project. And of course, Andrew, when he's not doing Sloan stuff is painting. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, that's his non Sloan. I think that was one of the things that appealed to me about Commonwealth in particular as well, though, was where each, like, I liked the fact that each member got their own side to sort of stretch their wings. And that was, you know, if that's the closest we get to an actual solo album from each of them, that's fine. But, you know, like it was a, it was a really nice insight to, you know, like what could be. Hmm. Totally. I mean, the good, the good thing about this band, you know, now we're getting into tangents that'll take us for another two hours. But (laughs) um, the good thing about this band is with every release, you are getting a solo album from each member, more or less, you know, these are four guys who can really do everything on their own, and come together when need be now, you know, it's not it's no longer that sort of jam band from 91 92. Uh, They don't need to be because it's well, and nobody's confined to their own instrument either. Exactly. And they're splitting up the space on the record too. So you don't get, you know, a Jay solo album that's like, you know, looking back with love or something, you know, like you don't get that awkward Mike Love solo album that's not that great. You know? <laughs> you know, so there's no opportunity to have like, you know, a, a 12 song LP that's got like a few stinkers on there, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just yeah, quality. Good, good editing is key for sure. Yes. Yeah. Just like on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that part will be gone, right? <laughs> that, no, no, I'm keeping keeping all this in. We just edited that in. Edit out the production notes. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and my and my final question, and kind of wrapping this up, would be: if you could think back, just sort of like a, a like your favorite Sloan memory. It could be a show, hearing a, a song on an album for the first time, like an interaction with one of the guys. Like, is there something where you think back and just like, oh, that like a, that was a really cool moment? Well, I got to be in the studio at Idea of East for some of one chord to another. Oh, amazing. Um, I was there when Mike Cowie was laying down the horn parts on... Cool. <laughs> on, yeah, wow. On, uh, you know, everything you've done wrong. And um, that was pretty special. It just it just sounded like, a, you know, it just didn't sound like something I expected from them. I thought, oh, this mm. is going to be huge. Uh, and it was. So, yeah. uh, you know, that, and just seeing them, you know, work on that song was was pretty cool. And, and, and just seeing them, you know, seeing them in the States, you know, that was, that was kind of a big deal. 
you know, even though they've been playing down there off and on for a little bit at that point, but, um, you know, to see, see them get a great reaction and to be touring with another band that I was really fond of, uh, it was, it was pretty special as well. I don't even know if I have any particular, like, I mean, Edgefest was a pretty big deal at the time as well. And I think that still stands out as a pretty big memory just for the fact that, you know, this is, you know, at my, at that point, you know, arguably my, my favorite band and, you know, least of all my favorite local band and, you know, here they are calling it a day and they're throwing a big bash with, you know, like all of their favorite bands. And like, you know, there were so many East coast bands that wound up going up and playing that, that, you know, it just felt like we were taking the party up to Toronto and, and continuing it there or something that's you know but i mean then on you know to the other side of that it was a little deflating seeing them in buffalo the next day because you know that really sent it home like that final toronto show i knew i was seeing them one more time after that so it really you know it's like this is this is good but this is you know this is only kind of setting me up for tomorrow now and buffalo was buffalo was somber for a lot of reasons but it was it was pretty somber but i mean you know the toronto show was just a big party you know, and it was like Hardship Post playing Coax Me, just two of them on that massive mm. stage at the Molson Amphitheater singing Coax Me was just ridiculous. Thrush Hermit doing their set of like the Steve Miller band covers. <laughs> I, 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 that, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's probably my favorite memory of that show, actually. I mean, I know it's all about Sloan, but that Thrush Hermit set was just ridiculous. Mm. Like, I, awesome. that by far, like the best Thrush Hermit thing I've ever seen was that set. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I'd only recently seen video of that show. And, you know, I wouldn't see them for another year. And they're just like night and day different bands, you know, like they were so much, I don't want to say tighter, or maybe punkier in 96. But yeah, like that 95 show just seemed like maybe the closing of that original period, you know, like that, you know, Jay's jumping up and down. And, you know, Chris (laughs) is like kicking things with his feet into the audience. And uh, everything's like, maybe like, 10 BPM faster than it would normally be. And I remember seeing like, there was like, it had been raining off and on all day too. I remember seeing like streaks of lightning, like off to the side, like the, like towards the CN tower end of things. Like it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a pretty crazy show overall, you know, Mm. at least of all, like at that point, probably the biggest crowd they'd played to. Mm. And I think that was the second ever show at the Molson amphitheater too. Oh wow! Yeah. Cause I think REM had played there a couple of weeks ago. They were the inaugural inaugural show. I'm I'm suddenly remembered of a a night at the Double Deuce that Chris put together, where he basically just got a bunch of I think it was mostly Murder Records performers, but there might have been some other ones where he got a bunch of his favorite local bands together to do a tribute to Kiss. Oh, the Kissmas <laughs> party! I missed that. I'm s- and uh, stinking rich doing uh, New York Groove. I've New heard York recordings, and, and then he did it like just his own original tune about how much he loved Kiss or something like that. Yeah. Did like an original rap about kiss kiss and, this, um, kiss that kiss my ass and 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 hermit came out and did did a set in makeup and and that's when um i think that might be the first time mcgettigan did the fire breathing yeah, they did sh- <laughs> I, I again i've heard a recording of that one i know they did shock me at least I yeah yeah <laughs> and i, I, I wish sloan might have done deuce i can't remember what everybody played but well I, like i i remember sloan doing a cover of two timer at one of the birdland shows while patrick was changing a string or something because i'd been yelling for chris to do a kiss cover the whole night <laughs> and he finally like wound up like just playing two timer by himself and then i think patrick joined him on backup vocals or something but yeah it was just like, sort of a filler thing deluxe boys did strutter 
Oh, nice. <laughs> hey, there you go. Is, is there a recording of that? Uh, let me see. <laughs> let me turn around and have a look. <laughs> let me just grab my cassette here. We're going to have so much on our digitization list after this one. <laughs> uh, the bootlegs are coming, folks. Well, this is I, not on this one. This is, uh, I found that this is the tape of when Deluxe Boys opened for Straight Jackets. Mm. Oh, wow. So let's see. There's a couple of originals. Um, the letter by the box tops. Uh, Choose your poison. She's on it. Um, <laughs> the broken string song. On it. A cover of "Come On Everybody" that I started in the wrong key, as I recall. Uh, <laughs> um, choose your yeah. Choose your poison. There's an original instrumental called "Schnar" dedicated to Monica Schnar. <laughs> I don't know if we were. Uh, What's on this one? We Whirl, that was an original. Uh, a cover of Saved by Laverne Baker. Gloria, the them Van Morrison tune. Oh, the jam oh. in the city. Oh, hey. Manic Monday. Johnny be good. Ooh. Um <laughs> Oh, we did all day and all the night. There you go. You be awesome. illin. Uh no, no strutter on there. Damn. Uh, rave on. <laughs> you be illin. Okay, we're gonna have to get this uh figured out how we can release the you be illin. <laughs> The Lost Boys cover to the masses of of people waiting. I don't think it was a full version of UB Illin. I think it was, you know, thirty seconds of it. Also, oh right, okay. Screen, so. right. <laughs> Amazing. But, uh, yeah, we. I mean, we were all kind of into that '80s hip hop mm. in those days. I mean, I, I certainly remember Jay playing like EPMD on his show, and Eric at B and Rakeem and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we talked with Andrew in the last episode about sort of the hip hop vibe, and that that's where his head was at as well. Well, Sloan would even break in to bring the was it uh, bring the noise? No, yeah. was it bringing noise? No, and then uh, every once in a while the the crisscross thing, the <laughs> like people jump. that would start yelling, "Warm it up, Chris!" I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We got to bring that back for uh, 2021. Hey. As long as we get shows happening again. <laughs> or we We're still start... waiting for our leg of the Navy Blues tour. It'll happen eventually. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen in the comments of the uh, Sloan Dude Instagram. We'll see. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, Sean, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today, you guys. This has been a pleasure. Uh, Stephen meeting you and Sean getting to kind of catch up with you, man. And uh, I would love to maybe, you know, circle back and maybe we can have you guys on again if we speak about something super specific. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, to everybody out there listening, thanks for listening. Obviously, check out uh, the Murder Pod, the Murder Records podcast, the Murder Records HQ Instagram account. If you have a bootleg of psychedelic chicken out there that you want to just pass Sean's way, you got to get that to him somehow. Get in touch with us through uh, Sloancast. Um, but anyway, yeah, like, share, subscribe, all the good stuff. Ken, any final thoughts, my friend? This has been a, a time a time travel experience unparalleled uh, from from my perspective. So thank you both very much for for joining us here and uh bringing the proverbial noise well, thanks again for having us along guys it was uh, great seeing both of you and having a chat thanks very much it was a great time awesome well, we'll see you next time on sloancast everybody take it easy